You know, I think that one of my biggest strengths as a dietitian and maybe as a human is that I'm very confident admitting what I don't know. Like feeding children, for example. I have plenty of opinions on how I feed my own children, but the best, most evidence-based practices for ensuring that kids get all the nutrients they need and that they develop a strong, healthy relationship with food, honestly, not in my wheelhouse. And things also change so quickly in childhood nutrition. For example, when my oldest, who is somehow turning 13 this year, was a baby, we avoided peanuts until the age of one because that was thought to be the best way to help prevent peanut allergy. And then five years later, with my youngest, it was actually pretty clear in the research that delaying peanut introduction was either A, unnecessary in low-risk kids, and or B, potentially making peanut allergy worse. So we gave her peanuts at around seven months. So today, I've brought in a heavy hitter to cover what is a sometimes confusing time for parents, introducing first foods for babies. We are talking to Nita Sharda, a registered dietitian in Winnipeg, Canada, and one half of Healthy Happy Eaters, an amazing Instagram account and educational resource for parents looking for evidence-based advice for feeding their kids. We are going to talk about everything from when is the right time to start solids to the internet controversy around iron-fortified cereals, from baby-led weaning to why you might actually want to rethink sippy cups. I know mind blown. It's a jam-packed episode that I hope will help you gain more confidence in feeding your wee ones. But first, we are so lucky to have Fodsign back as episode sponsor this week. If you have IBS, you need to know about Fodsign. If you react to foods like wheat, beans, or garlic, you know how challenging it can be to eat when you're not at home. I mean, garlic is in everything. But Fodzyme's unique blend of three enzymes is a flavorless powder that you simply sprinkle onto your meal so you can enjoy these foods with fewer symptoms. And yes, it comes in a handy travel pack that you sprinkle over your meal before you eat. Fodzyme is giving the All Sorts community 20% off their first order with the code DESIREERD. Visit Fodzyme.com to learn more about this incredible product. The link is in the show notes. Nita, thank you so much for coming to chat on the All Swords podcast. You know, being a dietitian and being a mom, people sort of assume that I know stuff about pediatric nutrition. They ask me questions all the time, and I'm always like, no, I have lots of opinions about how I feed my children, but like, this is not my wheelhouse. I am not an expert. You need to chat with someone who really knows their stuff. So I'm very excited that we get to share all of your knowledge with the community. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I've listened to the podcast a few times and I'm, yeah, I, I, I'm just like in awe that I get to, to be here and chat a little bit about infant nutrition. Well, the feeling is definitely mutual. And I feel like we should start with how you got started with Happy Healthy Eaters. So how did you as a dietitian and a mother decide, oh no, I am going to make this my thing? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think I kind of just fell into it a little bit by accident. And so in 2017, I had my first son. And when we started embarking on our journey in terms of starting solids and that entire weaning process, I went to just a local drop-in event that was sort of a very basic introduction to how to start your baby on solids. Because like you, I had predominantly at the time been practicing in adult care. And even to that end, it was long-term care. So very different in terms of um, of feeding. And when I went to the program, it was great. I got some helpful tips and suggestions, but being a South Asian parent and now having my South Asian baby, I wanted to make sure that I was providing my baby with a lot of the cultural foods that I prepare and that I enjoy. Um, and so I didn't leave that event quite fulfilled. And I thought, you know what, like there's a bit of a, a gap and a market missing here. People need to learn a little bit more about how they can adapt their own meals and recipes to better include their baby rather than to solely be cooking food just for the baby. And this is such a short-term 
time in the baby's life. And it's a great time to get the baby acquired to the taste that you enjoy as a family. So I set out to create a workshop. It was called Starting Solids. And I actually used to run it from my home and then eventually grew out of that space, ended up in a few community centers. And then sure enough, by the time I had my second son, a friend of mine, Jessica Penner, who is now my business partner at Happy Healthy Eaters, she's got a really great niche for food photography and sort of the back end of of blog and course development. So we decided to kind of put our two heads together and launch uh, an evergreen e-course called Start Solids Confidently, where we I think exactly that teaching parents how to feed their baby with confidence. And so that was the, that was how I got started. It it was just through my own weaning journey and a bit of, I guess, maybe feeling a bit isolated in terms of not having a culturally relevant information and wanting to do things a bit differently. Yeah. And it's such a vulnerable time, you know, when you are a new parent, I, I'm always amazed that, you know, when people are pregnant or they're a new parent, like just how much all of the things and all of the just sort of like activities around eating and food choice that for many people were sort of in the background, right? They were sort of like subconscious. We weren't Mm -hmm. consciously thinking about those things. All of a sudden it's like, I have this perfect little human. I want to keep them perfect. And I want to learn everything that I can about how to feed them. Like, how how do we know, you know, particularly, I feel like there's a lot of sort of standard information out there. Like this is when you start solids and like these, th- these are the first foods that you should eat. Like when do we know it's actually the right time to give our babies their first foods? Because I feel like this changes, you know, even like with my children, there are five years between them. And so with my oldest, for example, we were still in the don't give peanuts phase, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And then five years later, we were already, no, absolutely, you give peanuts phase. Like we don't hold back because we don't have a peanut allergic household. And so I feel like things change all the time. And mm-hmm. so how do we know, like, what does the evidence say now on like, what is the right time to give their babies first foods? Is it really about like, ooh, six months and start? Or is there something else mm-hmm. we should be looking for? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And I think I think overall that sweet spot is somewhere around the six month mark. But what we encourage parents to do is to zone in on your child developmental signs of readiness. And I think it's really easy to compare your baby to another baby on the neighborhood or in your in your parent group. But what you really want to do is hone in on their developmental signs of readiness. And so Typically, babies are ready to start solid somewhere between that four to six month range. Four months definitely is on the earlier side. And so, you know, often in practice, we're we're zoning in on that five to six month mark. And certainly we don't want to wait too far beyond six months just because of that iron need. But a few things that parents can look for is, is their baby able to sit up with minimal support? Can they move their head from side to side? I mean, that's a great way for baby to communicate to you that, no, they're done. You want to also look at the extrusion reflex, which is also known as a tongue thrust reflex. And so if your baby is, you know, always uh, when you're feeding your baby and they're just constantly pushing the food out with their tongue, you might want to hold back another week because they just might not be ready to use that tongue to push the food back and swallow. And then a lot of babies around four months, they are just like, hawks looking at their parents every time they're eating, which is a sign that your baby may be ready for solids or that they're showing an interest. But again, you kind of want to go through this as a bit of a checklist to help ensure that your baby is ready. And so for context, you know, if we were to assume that, you know, two babies were born at the same had the same due date, but one was born at 38 weeks and one was born at 42 weeks, I mean, they're both term babies, but that's a four-week difference, right? So that's the month of February. And if you know anything about parenthood is it goes by fast and a lot of development takes place even, even from month to month. And so really honing in on your baby is a great idea. And so if your child gets to six months, but say they're still using their tongue to like push everything out, is it okay to wait another week or two? I feel like many folks think that six months is that, oh, we have to start, they're at six months. 
Yeah, you can wait a week or two for sure. And I think, again, we don't want to wait too far beyond that. And there are things that you can do to help your baby sort of settle that reflex a little bit. And so, you know, if if you don't have the support of a dietitian, you can also work with local occupational therapists or speak to your physician for additional support as well. It's so important when you say, like when I'm thinking back to my kids being little, that idea of, oh, well, you know, like my mommy group's baby is already eating solids, but my baby's not eating solids yet. I feel like we do this as parents, particularly with our first children, this idea that, oh, they're somehow falling behind. And, you know, I remember people used to say to me, well, most people aren't still wearing diapers when they go to high school. Like it's going to be, <laughs> like mm-hmm. it is going to be okay and to let your baby really show you that they're ready. And it takes a lot of, it does take a lot of confidence in order to be able to yeah, do that. Yeah, no, 100%, 100%. And, you know, I'm sure maybe some of the listeners can appreciate this, but I actually received the green light to start at four months. And my physician knew I was a registered dietitian and he sort of just gently let me know. And I just looked at my baby. I had really like tiny babies. I had like no head and neck control, just like could not learn to sit until they were quite a bit older. And so intuitively I I knew, but I could appreciate how if you don't have that knowledge and as a first time parent kind of, you know, receiving advice that maybe feels counterintuitive mm-hmm. um, can be really challenging. But, you know, these signs of, of readiness are in all of the literature everywhere. And so we don't just want to go with chronological age. Amazing. I love that. And I love that it is a checklist too, so that you're like, okay, yes, yes, yes. We've got all of these. We're ready to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's talk about the actual foods to eat because you know, I was taught, and I think the prevailing wisdom always was that iron-rich foods are the most important foods to start. What do you think about that? And can you tell us why iron is so important? Yeah. And so we would agree that, you know, first foods really should be complementary, iron-rich foods. And so it's it's really important to have a good understanding of, of where those you know, foods, where, where that nutrient comes from. But in terms of the why, there's several reasons why. But the main reason is that when your baby is born, assuming that it was, you know, an uncomplicated pregnancy, they are born with a storage bank of iron. And your baby then relies on that storage bank of iron and you can you can think of it as withdrawals like every week they're taking a withdrawal to help sustain all of the growth and development that they're going through but around that 6 month mark that storage bank actually gets depleted and that is the purpose of of starting one of the purposes of starting solids is to ensure that we maintain optimal iron levels for baby to prevent deficiencies and also your baby's going to go through rapid growth and development between nine and 12 months. So of course, there's a lot of different things that can influence um, how much storage your baby is born with, but that's the predominant reason. And unfortunately, you know, breast milk is is wonderful. We love it. It's such a dynamic food. It doesn't have a lot of iron in it. It's It's got really great absorption, but it, it doesn't have enough once your baby is about six months. And also standard infant formula um, also contains iron, but it's not going to be enough once your baby hits that six to seven month age, uh, age range. And so what are the iron rich foods that parents should consider as their first foods? Yeah, absolutely. I think it really depends on every family and and what they're eating. But some great sources would be, of course, like meat, fish, poultry, dark poultry in particular. You'll also get a lot of iron from um, eggs. In particular, it's that egg yolk, beans, lentils. That was my baby's, both of them, their first food. You'll get some in edamame, tofu, actually even like blackstrap molasses, tomato paste, and cocoa powder has a tiny bit as well. So these are the foods that you really want to ensure that you're offering your baby. And there's also um, a, a product known as, you know, iron fortified infant cereal, uh, which I think you and I will will chat about in greater detail, but that's also a great product that families can start off with. So whether you're an omnivorous family or predominantly plant-based, there's lots of options for for all eating eating styles. Yeah. Yeah. And we, so it's so interesting because I think that 
oftentimes for iron, a lot of parents and a lot of a lot of health practitioners too, and I will say this just coming from the plant-based side, a lot of health practitioners will say, oh, well, you know, the best source of iron is always going to be meat and animal products. But you did mention that, you know, legumes like lentils are a great source of iron for babies. And I actually did give my babies, particularly red lentils. I found one of the challenges with plant-based proteins and plant-based sources of iron, of course, is always going to be the fiber because you're not getting that. With it, you know, with the the chicken and the beef, you're not getting that fiber and their little tummies and their little gastrointestinal tracts can be a little gassy sometimes. Like what what did you find giving legumes to your own kids? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think I didn't know too differently because these were inherently the foods that we were enjoying. And so to be honest, my I never noticed that my kids were particularly gassy or extra fussy on the days that I gave them these foods. But I have anecdotally heard this. And I think like anything, when you're transitioning from a liquid diet to a solid food diet, it's a huge huge change for the for the gut, right? And so taking things slowly is really, really great. And, you know, doing things like tummy massages and baby wearing um, sort of chest to chest can also be really helpful. But I think that I think that to a certain degree, we have to remember that digestion is an adaptation process. And so it is going to take time for your baby to get accustomed to um, higher fiber foods uh, when they've only ever been having, you know, formula or breast milk. Yeah, totally. Thank you for that. And Mm -hmm. what about iron fortified cereals? Because I feel like online there's a little bit of a backlash towards iron rich cereals because they are grain based, which, you know, like as a dietitian, I'm like, well, grains are very important foods as Mm -hmm. well. I, you know, from a, from a standpoint, and you tell me if I'm wrong about this, one of the one of the thoughts that I had that was similar to your last comment is the idea that I wanted to teach my children to eat the kinds of foods we enjoyed as a family. So legumes are a huge part of that. That was a really big part of that. The other thing that really stood out to me is that when they start eating, they're eating such small amounts. And so in many ways, in addition to the iron, I thought, I feel like I'm really just training them to eat with us as a family. And so part of that was flavor. And one of the things that, of course, the iron-rich cereals don't have is a lot of flavor. They tend to be very bland. And so for me, I was like, okay, so I'm going to like add a little bit of cinnamon or I'm going to puree a little bit of a vegetable they've already tried into that just to give them more opportunities to sort of build their flavor acceptance. Yeah, I would love to know what you think about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's a whole host of reasons why folks may have really emotional feelings towards infant cereal. I think one of them being that it is a quote unquote processed product and the and it's fortified, right? But I think that when there's a lack of understanding and knowledge around the importance of, of this, it's easy to it's easy to fall kind of like prey to a lot of the fear mongering. So, you know, we we love the use of infant cereals. And we think, again, it's a complementary iron-rich food, right? It shouldn't be something that your baby is having like every single day at every single meal, but you can certainly use it, um, you know, from time to time, or just like you mentioned, adding in other foods to boost the nutrition content. So while it is a really great source of Iron, it doesn't have other key nutrients like fat or zinc or B12. So things that I love doing was adding in finely shredded coconut flakes to it, or even like mashing up some seasonal fruit or adding an egg yolk. I think there's a lot of different ways that you can utilize infant cereal. Um, and, and also we're huge on using it um, in recipes. So in a lot of baking recipes, you can actually replace about 30 to 50% of the flour with infant cereal and you're going to get a very similar product. So we have a ton of uh, recipes for biscottis and muffins that utilize infant cereal. And again, a great like first food for, for babies um, where they can, you know, have something that includes a lot of other ingredients that parents are eating, but has the bonus of the added iron. Oh my God. I love that. I, okay. I never, ever thought of that idea. So I very much wish I had your guidance with me like years ago. I can't believe I never thought that, of course, this is essentially like a flour product and you could use it as a flour. Yeah. 
Yeah. So my beans are four and six and, and to this day, I still bake with it or I'll use it to thicken smoothies because I think just by virtue of being a Punjabi household, we are not, we're omnivores, but we don't eat uh, meat every single day. So I am often, you know, trying my best to stay on top of their, their iron intake. And that's just one of the ways that we, we continue to do that. Oh my God, that's so smart. And I, I think one of the biggest challenges around this idea of processed foods is that we somehow believe that they don't fit in a healthy diet. And while I'm very, I mean, obviously I'm very much for feeding our families as many whole foods as humanly possible. I think that our, when it comes to feeding our children, our own sort of fears and perceptions of what healthy looks like, but also sort of the diet culture messages that we absorb, you know, this is a really important time to check in so that we're sort of like, what are my thoughts around food and eating? Where do they come from? And are these something that I want to maybe take care of not to pass on to my kids? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that when you start to feed your little humans, it's almost like a magnifying glass is being shined on the very sort of I'll use the word challenges, right? The very, the very issues that you have, you yourself have to work through. And so I think, I think going into it with some openness is really great, despite, you know, how you're feeling. Parents might be really excited. Others are nervous and anxious, but I think the big word, the big key takeaway is just be open, be open to, you know, different pieces of information that come along your way. Yeah, I love that. And so once we've got sort of our iron-rich foods figured out, we're like, okay, baby's getting iron. How do we introduce the other foods in their life, like fruits, vegetables, grains? Are there foods that we should still be pausing until a certain age to introduce? Or is the thinking now that we introduce gradually as we eat in our own family? Yeah, historically, the recommendation has been, you know, pick a food, so peas, and offer that to your baby two to three times, then move on to sweet potato, do that two to three times. But actually, like in the evidence that's sort of unfounded, there's no need to necessarily wait two to three days you know, offering, offering each food, because it's going to take you a really long time to get to like a family dinner. So when I think about like chana masala or or dal, there's like 10 different ingredients that go into that. So I'm not going to wait, what, 30 days before I introduce dal. I think, you know, you have to do a bit of a risk assessment. So, you know, if your baby, you know, doesn't have FPIs or doesn't have any allergies, then you can probably group together foods that are not on that top priority allergen list, and it's probably going to be okay. Now, if you've got a baby with a lot of allergies or infant proctocolitis, then I think, you know, we're in a different ball game, right? I think then a very slow and steady one-by-one approach, very systematic might be what's what's best for that uh, feeding diet. And so I think it really just depends. But overall, if if, if baby is not high risk for, you know, allergies and doesn't have any, you can definitely mix these foods together. And I find in practice, a lot of the families that try to do it, uh, where it's like, okay, three days and then three days and then three days, they end up just, you know, they kind of end up giving up and just like lumping a bunch of foods together because I think you see your baby, they're so excited to eat. They want to start joining you in on those family meals and then up, like you hand them some of the food off your plate, right? And so I think parents need to ultimately do what works best for them in terms of the evidence. It's okay to mix a couple different food groups together. Just be mindful of those top priority allergens. Oh, okay. That's so helpful. So if your baby already does not not have evidence of allergies and you're not from a high-risk family, like you have like anaphylactic peanut and tree nut allergies yourself. So if you are not in that category, now the wisdom is, of course, you can, you know, make sure that you have some mixed foods as you introduce so that it can be more like normal feeding. Correct. Yep. Incredible. Yeah. I feel mm-hmm. like then this is the maybe perfect place to introduce the concept of baby led weaning, which is something that, again, like my my oldest is turning 13 this year. So like 13 years ago, never heard of it. 
And Ooh. then, you know, eight years ago with my, we were like, oh, baby led weaning is sort of the way, like, what is baby led weaning? Yeah. You know what? At the, baby led weaning at the heart of it is this idea that the caregiver is not placing food in the baby's mouth and the baby is taking the lead in terms of placing food into his or her mouth. And so it can often look like a baby holding a piece of food. So imagine a drumstick or maybe a little muffin that they bring to their mouth and they gnaw on it. Or it could be a preloaded spoon with a little bit of puree on it that they're then self-feeding. So I think I think there's a big miss conception that it's like totally skipping the puree stage, but that's not necessarily true. Uh, You know, offering your baby purees by spoon can still be really developmentally important because it helps them practice lip closure. But generally these babies are doing a lot of finger foods right from the get-go. And it comes from the you know, the name itself comes from the UK and in the UK, they they use the word weaning a little bit differently than we might in North America. So when I first heard of baby led weaning, I was like, I'm not ready to wean. Like, you know, I thought it was like weaning off the breast or chest. And then I was wrong. And then I, I kind of realized, okay, like this is how they view the word weaning. It's the start, the the very first start of solid food is the initiation of sort of a long weaning process. So that's why I think there's a bit of confusion around the term. Yeah, it is really confusing because I do think we think of that that term weaning as like, okay, so no more milk then. Like six months, no yeah. more milk, but that's not. It is about the introduction of solids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so how do you decide... Because I feel like proponents of baby-led weaning are very strong in that they're like, this is the way to ensure sort of like healthy eating development. And is there, is this sort of like a philosophy that you follow to the letter or are there some sort of insights that we can introduce even if sometimes we are feeding our babies, for example? Yeah, again, and I I think going back to that conversation we had with cereals, like it's so easy to get stuck in dichotomous thinking where it's like this way or that way. And at Happy Healthy Eaters, we actually just want parents to get comfortable with the gray and not be so black and white in their thinking. So I find in practice, like babies and parents thrive using a mixed approach where babies are offered like some handheld foods and then purees as well. Because I think as parents, we need to practice responsive feeding. And um, sometimes babies, you could hand them, handle them all the finger foods in the world. Uh, it could be gourmet, but they're not going to pick it up and eat it. So I think then we need to pivot and these babies actually benefit from a more slow and steady approach where the caregiver is really involved in feeding and then slowly, you know, progressing the baby in terms of tech texture, uh, but teaching the baby how to self-feed as well. So I think all babies are really, really unique and it would be so um, incredibly unfair to assume that, you know, baby led weaning is the way to go for all babies. And, and even from a parental sort of standpoint, some, some parents' anxiety, especially if you are living with postpartum depression or diagnosed PPA, I mean, some, sometimes that gets in the way as well. And so it's a lot of coaching in terms of, you know, starting slowly, but progressing, right? That That's the key word is like, either way we need to progress, right? So whether you start with baby led weaning or purees, you know, by the time your baby hits their first birthday, they want to, you want to essentially see them having bite-sized pieces of the family meal. I think that's so helpful because I do think because it is such a vulnerable stage that there is a lot of anxiety mm. that can be into, I mean, which is why you have a course, which I highly recommend people check out because especially if you are going to social media for your advice and for your guidance, as opposed to sort of more long form, like either going to your health center and getting help from the pediatric specialist there or going to see a dietitian. I think we lose a lot of the nuance and the gray when we're only looking at social media for advice. Yeah. And I think on social media, you really only see your baby led weaning babies that are adventurous. You don't see the the uber cautious or the slow and steady parent or baby, right? And so I think that that subset of parents are then feeling like left out or feel like they did something wrong. But 
they they didn't. I think it's still baby led. You know, you're if starting with purees, if that's what's right for your baby, as far as I'm concerned, is baby led, right? And so again, key takeaway is progression. And of course, if you are really struggling with your with your mental health in this feeding diet, then getting the support that you need is so important. And I'll be the first to tell you, you are not alone. I've been to plenty of, of homes, like helping parents feed their baby and parents are just like, you know, really upset or really emotional about the whole process. So just trust that you're not at all alone in this. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for that. I, you know, I think another great check-in too, and when I'm, when I'm thinking about like my own anxiousness, when I was feeding and the questions that I had, one of them was like, how much should a baby actually eat? Because I remember particularly with my first you know, it was so little. Like I felt like they were eating maybe a teaspoon of food. And I was like, I don't know if this is right or not. Like how, how do we know they're getting enough? Yeah. Initially, like a very small amount is fine. So like a tablespoon, don't like, it's not too little. Conversely, some babies, like they love eating solids. And so they could eat, you know, perhaps a quarter cup, a half a cup, or even more. And The hardest part of this conversation is talking about trust. So similar to when you're bottle feeding or nursing your baby, you're sort of just trusting this process, right? And you're you're looking at growth, you're looking at development. And I think with solids, it's really no different is that you're going to trust your baby to eat exactly what is right for them. Now, I mean, if you're running into trouble and it's like eight months and nine months and baby's still not interested in solid food, then you might want to have a conversation with a dietitian or with your doctor to chat about some strategies or to see, you know, you know, is there something that's preventing baby from, you know, being successful with solids? And so, you know, that's a whole other conversation. But in general, you know, it's very normal for babies to start with a small amount once a day, and then by seven months, two meals a day, and then by nine months, you kind of want to build in three meals a day. And that really helps the stage for, you know, structured meal and snack time into toddlerhood and then school age as well. And how, if they're also being, well, they're being fed with, with formula or breast milk, like what is the time, like, when we're trying to progress them, like, should we be feeding the solids first? And then the, like, how, how do we structure that when we're doing both feeding and solid foods? Yeah. So spoiler, like there, again, like there's no one best method. I think that it really just depends on that diet between the caregiver and the baby and maybe even just like your schedule and circumstance. So, you know, the World Health Organization and all the different, you know, organizations that kind of examine this will say, you know, it it just depends. I think that most parents are nursing or offering a bottle first, and then they wait 40-ish minutes maybe 60 minutes and then do solids. But if you notice your baby isn't interested in solids, then you might want to switch it up and maybe start with solids first and then offer a nursing or bottle feeding session afterwards. So I think that, again, it depends on on each family and each situation. I know that sometimes like I nursed first and other times I did solids first. It just depended on my, on my day and what that looked like. And, you know, what is your sort of perspective on store-bought purees and baby foods versus homemade? Because I think that parents put a lot of pressure on themselves that everything should be homemade like all of the time. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's like not completely necessary, but it's also not forbidden, right? I think that it can definitely play a role in supporting you with your solid food journey with your baby. And there are some really great cool products that are on the market. And I find I find like even though I'm out of the baby feeding phase, like I still love visiting that aisle because there's so many new innovations that are happening. Um, I think ultimately, you know, as much as you can in terms of your bandwidth, offering homemade foods is going to help your baby set up for success in terms of those family meals. But using, you know, store-bought purees or pouches or little puffs, like I think that it can complement the rest of the 
of the meal, no problem. So as a fun fact, like I always added like prune pouches to our kebabs and little like baby burgers. I just found it added a bit of sweetness, some really great ingredients in there to keep my baby regulated, but also added a lot of moisture for me to get that soft end product that I really wanted. So I think there's a lot of creative and fun ways to use baby baby products, baby food products. But if you want to go for it, if you also don't want to, that's okay too. I think I think so long as it's not coming from this like elitist, like baby food culture, which is also a thing, then it is all good. You know, there's, there's room for all of it. I found that I used them so much with my first, Mm -hmm. but there was also like a very prolonged puree time with my first. And so I was just like, (laughs) oh, I just like can't make any more purees where with my second, there was sort of like less puree time. Like we sort of progressed a little faster. And then where I found they were so helpful was just when I'm out. Like I always had pouches or puffs in my bag so that when we're out, it was something easy. Whereas at home, we were sort of just like mashing up the food that we ate. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I actually found it was the opposite. Like with my first, I didn't really do as many. I think I had more time. And by the time I had my second, it was like, oops, like going to squeeze this pouch (laughs) into a bowl. And this is like, we're going to call it a day. And so I think it just totally depends on, on, the support that you have available and the type of baby that you have as well. And I think it's so important for, you know, first time parents hearing this to be like, look, look how different it is. It can be different. Both kids are perfectly healthy and both kids had different eating experiences, but you did mention prunes Mm. and you did mention like gut stuff. And so I want to talk a little bit about solids and like poops. I mean, parents are obsessed with feeding, parents are obsessed with poops. Like how, how do we, support our babies if we notice they're a little bit constipated? Mm -hmm. There's definitely foods that can help to support laxation for babies. So, you know, foods that we love and we talk about a lot is pear. I mean, pear is great. It has a lot of sorbitol in it as well. Mango is also really lovely. Peas, I mean, peas are loaded with fiber as well. And then you can use a lot of fun seeds and you could add them into purees if that's your jam. So ground flaxseed is really great for supporting laxation. And then you could also make your baby like a little chia seed pudding um, and I loved using canned coconut milk because it was extra fatty and flavorful. So there's lots of different foods that you could offer. Some families, I might even recommend that they dial back on iron fortified infant cereal um, because that could be bumming baby up a little bit, especially if it's something that they're offering every day or multiple times a day. I might just ask them to just to dial back a little bit. Um, Otherwise, um, things like um, the I Love You Baby Massage is really great for their belly and um, ensuring that they're adequately hydrated. So, you know, offering more nursing sessions or a bottle. And then, you know, if your doctor is comfortable with it, you could also offer two to four ounces of water just to keep them really well hydrated and to soften that stool. And so those are all great foods in addition to the prunes. I think we talk about prunes a lot, but there's lots of other foods outside of prunes that can be so helpful for a baby and their their tummy. Okay, so potential causes of constipation then in our babies. It could be if we're feeding iron cereals three times a day because iron sometimes can be, it doesn't always, but it can be constipating. So hydration is really important. So feeding or potentially some water if that's appropriate for your baby. And then fiber. So adding in those fiber, the sorbitol rich fruits like mango and pear, but then also fiber. So like ground flax and some foods, maybe some ground chia. So all of those things you mentioned water and when when should we consider water and when should we not consider water yeah you can start to offer babies a little bit of water no more than 2 to 4 ounces um, at 6 months and the reason why we cap it is because we don't want it to displace the intake of Um, human milk and formula. That being said, if you are offering water, we recommend offering it in an open cup or in a straw cup. I love the open cup because it helps teach your baby lip closure. And lip closure, again, is a really important skill for when you're eating and swallowing, but also speaking, right? Like 
certain words you can only say if your lips end up closing. And so it's it's also just a skill that your baby needs to develop. And the other reason why we, you know, encourage offering a few sips of water is because it helps your baby to understand, okay, when I'm hungry and and I need food, like I eat food, but when I'm thirsty, I drink water, right? So it's a great way to teach your baby about another beverage that down the road will help them to quench thirst, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So you mentioned specifically open cup or straw Mm -hmm. cup, not sippy Mm -hmm. cup. Tell me about that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So sippy cups, oh, there's like so many and they're so beautiful. And so I can appreciate why like someone might want to buy so many of them, but you really don't need them. And the reason why is because they act very much like a bottle in disguise, right? And so the baby has to use the same motion in terms of like a sucking pattern when using a sippy cup, especially one with a hard spout. So instead we recommend teaching them to suck from a straw or to drink from an open cup. Because again, eating is about, you want to view it as like, it's a skill, right? Where they're learning to eat and drink. And so it's a little bit about mastery. I think if you're going to, you know, offer it the odd time here and there, like, sure, no big deal, but like consistently, maybe, maybe not going to work to um, that, that, you know, that, that benefit in terms of like progression with skills. Okay. My mind is blown because I feel like this whole landscape is dominated by the sippy cup. <laughs> so like it's the idea that we're like, no, it we want to teach our wee ones other skills, you know, both on like how, yeah. how to do those mouth movements, but also even the skill that water is for thirst and food is for hunger. Mm-hmm. But speaking of other drinks, milk or plant-based milk? Like what do we do around that? Like when do we introduce it? How do we introduce it? Yeah. And I, I, so, I mean, I think if a family is wanting to transition um, eventually to cow's milk, you can start that somewhere around the 12 month mark. If a family wants to extend nursing, then they're also welcome to do that. And they don't need to introduce a cow's milk or a plant milk. And then if babies are or toddlers are being raised in a you know vegan household predominantly plant-based household or if they have cow's milk protein allergy there's a bit of there's a bit of a like you'll get mixed opinions but certainly we don't want to be you know, offering a lot of the lower calorie plant beverages that don't have, you know, adequate fat and protein. So that in that case, you might want to work a bit more one-on-one with a dietitian who can kind of zone in on the, on like what your baby's already accepting or your toddler. And I think you, you probably know this, like toddler food acceptance is like a whole other podcast episode, but you kind of want to look at what what does the rest of their intake look like? What are the gaps? And then what milk is going to help um, support that need? And in some cases, like we've 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 done some assessments and babies benefit from longer term use of an infant formula before we move them on to a plant-based beverage. But for most babies, there always is going to be a really great option that is going to work for the entire family. We just want to make sure that we have adequate fortification, fat, protein, because um, that liquid diet actually surprisingly still provides them with a lot of energy. So we had looked at a few studies and even at 12 months, you know, 40 to 60% of a 12 months energy needs are met by some form of a liquid. So kind of goes to show how important that milk, human milk or formula really is. Yeah. And so I, I typically, when people ask me, I typically recommend mm. soy milk as the plant-based milk to wean onto because of the protein and the fat. Like it's the most nutrient dense. And I think that message gets lost a lot, A, because there is a ton of misinformation about soy, like like a literal ton. Soy is good for you. There's a podcast on it. I'll link it in the show notes. But I also think that oftentimes as adults, we choose plant-based milks as as like lighter beverages, we're looking for lower carb or we're looking for lower Mm -hmm. calorie. And that is the exact opposite of what we want to give. We, we forget that our, like our babies go from like this tiny to like full grown humans in like 16, 18 years, the amount of energy required to sustain that growth is phenomenal. And it's the opposite of what we want Mm -hmm. when we're 40, but like they need that energy. 
Mm-hmm. No, totally. The only time like I find I need to really like think about things is if baby has a cow's milk protein allergy and then this the soy allergy. Those are always a little more trickier cases. And then in, in those cases, we are looking at extended use of formula or possibly, you know, a part-time use of a plant beverage that probably is going to be something like uh, a nut-based product, or maybe it is going to be something a little bit more like a pea product or rice milk. I think it, again, like it, it really just depends and getting tailored nutrition advice, like can be so important. Um, especially if you are in a situation where there are foods that you have to avoid for your baby because of allergies or intolerances. I have one more biggie for you before we move on to the Mm -hmm. rapid fire. And that is supplements for babies. Mm-hmm. So lots of folks are very supplement focused in their own life and probably wondering, well, what about babies? What can I give them? What do they need? And are there additional things that we can give our very young children to ensure that we're covering all their nutritional bases? What's your thought on that? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like we definitely recommend vitamin D. That's very important for babies, but almost indefinitely, like we live in a Northern climate. And for those of us who have slightly more melanated skin, um, our healthcare provider might advise that we take an even higher dose of vitamin D. Um, Otherwise, when it comes to iron, I think it really just depends on each family's situation. So there have been a few times where I'm working with a plant-based family and we may decide to supplement with um, vitamin B12, um, just because it's a bit trickier to find that in plant-based foods. And then sometimes, you know, we've looked at some iron as well. But again, I think working one-on-one with a dietitian to determine like risk factors and then the best product is, is going to be really, really great. Just because again, like those iron needs are really high. If babies are predominantly plant-based, uh, you want to just ensure that they're getting enough. And so in some cases, iron may be helpful. But on the whole, I think if your baby or toddler is eating a wide variety of foods, and again, zone out, don't just look at like the one meal that they rejected or threw on the full threw on the floor but if they're eating a wide variety of foods you know over a week over two weeks then chances are they don't need an additional supplement again I think I sound like a broken record here but a dietitian can always support you in making sure that your baby is getting what they need and if not then I think that's where supplements can be such a such a great tool in your toolkit for feeding. okay so generally speaking vitamin D for all, and then the rest from food. Correct. I love that. Thank yeah. you. Okay, let's move on to the rapid fire questions now. So sure. we're all hoping, given the wealth of knowledge that you are, they can make us all feel a little bit better by letting us know one thing your kids absolutely refuse to eat. I hope there's one. <laughs> there's a lot. But like they they like they they're not like big into a lot of vegetables unless it's Indian. Like if I make sag or if I make, you know, okra, like they'll eat that. But if I made a Greek salad, like they would not touch that. So, you know, we struggle definitely with like raw vegetables and then vegetables that are cooked in a way that's not Indian. My my oldest ate everything and I 100% congratulated myself because it was some like dietitian coup. And then my youngest is the same way. She's like, I don't really like vegetables. I will sometimes eat cucumber, but I don't like vegetables. I was like, oh, crying yeah. in my soup. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sweet or savory? What do you prefer? Oh, sweet. Yeah. Your favorite, I'm too tired to cook meal. Oh, cereal. Like good old box cereal is great. Or we do this a lot when the weather is really nice. Cause if you know anything about Winnipeg summers, they're really hot, um, is smoothies and like popcorn. It's like a balanced meal. I love that. Yeah. I have not done, I've, I have not done smoothies for dinner and I feel like the popcorn, like my kids would be (laughs) win-win. Yeah, because then we have time to go out to the park or do other things um, other than be in the kitchen and cook. So I got that from Jessica and um, yeah, we do that like several times over the summer just so we can get out and go to the beach or have fun and it travels really well too. I love that. Okay, what Mm -hmm. you're watching right now? Oh, (laughs) 
Nothing. (laughs) If I'm being honest, nothing. Okay. So what is your secret to not crashing in front of Netflix at the end of the night then? (laughs) (laughs) An early bedtime, you know, both my, we're in this like phase where both boys like do really well when we sleep with them. And so it's really hard to pass up the opportunity to have an early bedtime. And well, and I, I know this about you too, is that you protect your sleep. So that's what I, I do too, is, is go to bed early. That's like the, the kick in the pants I need to be like, you don't need to watch something, go to bed an hour earlier. Yeah. 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 How much better rested would we all be? Okay. Totally. But when the next season of Bridgerton is on, I will be tuning into that. So I don't know when that's happening, but I did really like that. And I'll, I'll show up when that is playing. I just watched Queen Charlotte, the Bridgerton story when I was on mm-hmm. a trip and I loved it. I, I don't know how Shonda Rhimes awesome. makes such delicious television, but she is flawless. Not <laughs> well, yeah. She's okay, great. last one. Three things you'd bring with you to a deserted island. You already have your family. Like it could be non Yeah, and like lit objects, anything. Three things you'd bring with you. Yeah, so like... Like, assuming I have some Wi-Fi, I'd probably bring my cell phone. <laughs> I'd probably bring my pillow because, you know, I need to get some, like, good rest. And then probably dark chocolate because life is just too short to pass up on on dark chocolate. I love that. Nita, thank you so mm-hmm. much. This episode is going to be so jam-packed with information. And I know that it's going to be so helpful to so many parents just feeling a lot more confident mm-hmm in trusting the process, trusting their babies, and trusting that it's all going to be okay. Totally. I'm so glad that we had this opportunity. Thank Thank you. you. Nita absolutely blew my mind with the sippy cup thing. I wish that I had had a resource like Healthy Happy Eaters when I was feeding my kids. I probably would have made are fewer mistakes. I mean, as we talked about in the episode, they're also totally fine. But like, how nice would it be to have someone like Nita by your side to guide you through this important time? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the All Sorts Podcast, which is produced by myself and edited by Brian McCalman. We are grateful to live and work on the unceded and ancestral territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Until next week, friends, be well. Thank you.